At this point, some of you might be thanking him again. Didn't he just give a sermon just a minute ago? Kind of felt like a mini sermonette, right? <laughs> Got a little ahead of myself. So, um, so welcome to the folks that maybe uh, are here for the first time or have been gone. Uh, I know we just had a ton of sickness and people traveling and all that stuff. So just glad you're here with us today. And I uh, want to kind of catch you up to speed just briefly on where we are in, in our journey here. Um, we're kind of taking a look at what was on the heart of Christ um, the mind of Christ in his last days, um, when they, his last days were coming to a close. So in this series, we've been taking a look at the, at the six parables um, that he covers in the last week of his life. And so we've gone through the first couple. Um, and these first three parables are all actually just one big conversation. Um, same audience um, and, and really kind of probably a growing audience because Jesus is delivering these um, parables in the temple of, uh, in, in Jerusalem, so in the temple courts. And so, you know, kind of the center of religious life for the Jews. And so as Jesus continues to talk, I'm, I'm picturing in my mind kind of the crowd kind of continuing to grow. And Jesus is using these parables to reveal the true hearts of the religious leaders of Israel at the time who for centuries um, have rejected the messengers of God and are now in, in real time rejecting his son, Jesus, as well. And Jesus is making it very clear the consequences of this pattern of kind of rebellious disobedience, that, that those who reject um, the Son of God will not enter the kingdom of the Father. And in fact, so many Jews were rejecting Christ that God in these parables also was saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to swing the doors open a little wider here to some people that might be a little bit more excited about what I'm offering them. And so this idea that this message is going to go out to the Gentiles as well. So it's kind of a bitter pill for the Jews to swallow. We've kind of seen their anger starting to grow as Jesus goes deeper, deeper into these stories. So today we're going to take a look at the, the parable of the wedding banquet, which is in the beginning of Matthew 22. You can open your Bibles there if you'd like to get ready. It's page 898 in your pew Bibles. So in a way, this is kind of Jesus' third attempt uh, to kind of explain to his audience the desperateness of the situation. He understands that in two short days, he's going to be on the cross. And so once more, he tries to make clear to these religious leaders their need for repentance. And in his grace, he kind of continues to reach into his bag and pull out one more story, <laughs> one more new way, a new angle, new slant, new pr perspective um, to kind of get their attention, to help them figure it out. I don't know if you've ever been in that place with, especially with kids or younger people, you're like, let me think of another way to tell you what it is I want you to hear. You know, maybe I can find a story that will connect with you. So this is kind of where Jesus is at here. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 to begin with. So chapter 22, verse 1 says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. So in this parable, Jesus is telling the story of kind of the greatest honor that could happen to anyone in a society, an invitation from the king to attend the wedding of the prince, like a royal wedding, which would be a, just a huge prized invitation, invitation, okay? And guys, I don't even know those folks over in England right, that have a king, but I can guarantee you that if, if a few months ago, a year ago, whenever Prince Harry got married, if I would have gotten an invitation 
addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Bob Miller at 2101 Elephant Trail in St. Joe, Missouri to come to their wedding, you better believe I'm on that flight, right? And I don't care if I've got money, I'm, I'm charging it, you know, getting dressed to the nines, I'm getting my lady a nice dress, right? We're going to that wedding, right? Because only a few people ever get to experience something like that. And think about it, you would have the ultimate trump card forever, right? When you're at social settings and somebody wants to pull a, you know, some bigger than story, oh, I climbed Mount Everest. I'm like, dude, I was at a royal wedding in England, right? So just shut your mouth. I've got it. Okay, right? Because you can't imagine, I mean, I would have a sense of how special that is. Like only a certain number of people got that invitation and little old me was one of them, right? But weddings back then were epic affairs, and so it's kind of hard for us to understand. You know, we kind of do this little one-day celebration mostly, right? There's, most of their weddings were a week long, a week of food and wine and frivolity and just this joyous celebration. And now, put on top of that, that this is a royal wedding, right? This is the most opulent, you know, over-the-top thing you could think of, the finest of everything, and Jesus is kind of setting up his listeners. Sometimes in, in the parables, you'll notice he kind of like goes like over the top, like hyperbole, right? Like he's, so he's kind of trying to set this up because the whole audience is thinking the same thing. What do you mean they refuse to go? Like that is just a week-long celebration at the castle, free food. Like who doesn't want that? Who turns that down? Plus, they also know that a lot of times in their society, if you got invited to something like that, like, you better come. Like, you don't say no to the king or else you could get punished. Like, they kind of understood, like, hey, <laughs> there's not a lot of options here. Of course they need to accept, accept this. So they are kind of shocked when Jesus is telling this story at how the guests are reacting, okay? So how does the king respond to this idea that a lot of people kind of refused him initially? And that, Well, initially he's, he's pretty patient, okay? And, and he kind of sweetens the deal. Look at verse 4. He says, then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen, fat and calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. The king is like, maybe they didn't understand how, how good this was going to be, right? Tell them about the food that they're going to eat. Like this is going to be the greatest celebration that they could ever experience. Look at verse 5. It says, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The people paid no attention and went back to work. <laughs> well, what's going on here? Right? The, the Greek translation of that word paid no attention would translate as just kind of unconcerned or indifferent. How is that possible? And again, the crowd listening to the story, this growing crowd, they're all just sitting there hearing this like, what is going on? Right? Nobody acts like that. A refusal of the highest honor in your country. This is just unfathomable. And indifference was tough to swallow, those who kind of went back to work and just kind of brushed it off. But what happens next would have just pushed the listeners over the edge. They're like, they murdered the, the messengers that were trying to bring him to this great royal wedding feasts? Like, these people are sick. What's wrong with them? And now at this point in the story, we're all starting to kind of read between the lines here a little bit, right? We understand, like, really what Jesus is saying with this story. 
It's a story within a story. What he's really talking about is the kingdom of God. And, and God in this story is the king, and Jesus is the son. And God's chosen people, the Jews, have, have always been invited to come and to celebrate what God is doing in the world, the many blessings that he has for them. But like you, you read throughout the Old Testament, often they rejected God's prophets and messengers. Justin talked about uh, last week that a lot of times they, would, they, they tortured and they, they um, beat and they murdered even some of God's prophets throughout history who were trying to come and tell them, get them right back on the right path. Sometimes it was a message they didn't want to hear, but always inviting them into to good things. And now they were doing the same thing to God's son, Jesus. And as I was going through this, I was kind of wondering, man, how, how must this make God feel? <laughs> he set the table for this amazing feast. And all the guests have to do is just to come and sit down and receive what God has done for them, for us, right? And even though they've rejected him time and time again, God continues to pursue them. We as a human race have been so unfaithful, so unappreciative of his grace. Why does he keep coming after us? Right, we sang about that this morning, like, your heart won't stop coming after me. Like, why is that true? Despite our actions, our indifference, our hostility, why does he continue to pursue us? What do you guys think? Yeah. Okay, yeah, he, he wants community, he wants somebody to do life with, he wants somebody to enjoy the feast, right? Why else? Why does he keep pursuing this, yeah? The only way I, I try to wrap my head around it is like I got kids, and in my mind they'll never do anything that would make me shun them, or I'll live until they die or until I die. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's important. He's talking about just the love that we as parents have for kids and that you know, we would pursue them no matter what they did because we love them and they're ours. And I think sometimes there's this disconnect between you know, people either believing there's no God or if they believe there's a God, um, they don't really believe in or, or have bought into this, this language or this understanding of, of him being a father and us being his child, that we were really created by him. And, and so we, we're, our, we're, we're his, <laughs> right? And he's committed to us and pursuing us no matter how far we stray. Good answers. Anything else? Why does he keep pursuing us? Yeah, Matt? Okay. Yeah, his plan, especially for us who are followers of Christ, is, is to make us like Jesus. So he's committed to that plan. So he's, he's going to keep pursuing that. Um, one answer that kind of popped in my head this morning as I was rereading it again that I hadn't even thought of it at all is that I think he keeps pursuing us because he knows the reality of hell. And that kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit. Like he knows how bad eternal separation from him is. And that crushes him 
crushes him that any one of his children would choose that path over the feast that he's prepared for us. And so that knowledge just drives him to extend grace and grace and mercy and mercy to us so undeserved. So starting in verse 7, we start to see a shift in the king's response to this rejection a little bit here. Verse 7 says this, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So now the king is angry, and rightfully so. And this story shows us that, that, that there is a limit, right, to, to the patience that God has for those who are different, are hostile towards his son. God is kind and patient, but he's also just. Colossians 3.25, Paul puts it like this. He says, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And when we look at this vivid image that Jesus is presenting here, like a whole town wiped out and the city burned to the ground, it's a little bit shocking. We're like, whoa, hey, (laughs) that's severe justice. But we need to keep in mind that it comes on the heels of a severe mercy. God bent over backwards to prepare for this this amazing feast for his subjects, and even after their obstinate refusal to come to the wedding, he, he gives them another opportunity to make things right. He sends out more messengers and more messengers. But at some point, our rebellious and kind of lawless natures have to be dealt with. It reminds me of a quote I came across this week, this book we're reading with our staff by Andy Crouch. He said this, If there is no hell for those who cling to tyranny and refuse mercy... There is no such thing as justice. Just leave that up there for a second. How does that sit with you? Because quite honestly, we're kind of in a, in a Christian culture these days that kind of wants to kind of tiptoe around the conversation of hell or, or flat out just say there isn't, there isn't a hell. <laughs> um, that in the end, you know, love wins and everybody gets to go to heaven. And I don't know. So how does this sit with you, this statement? Yeah, Scott, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's just a harsh and painful reality, even if, you know, if it's true. It's still hard. Yeah, Donna? Yes, it's the whole truth. Like, here it is. Mm-hmm. Lord and Lord sent mercy. He says him as our Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. So there definitely is a hell. Yeah, so there's this tension, right? It's like grace is amazing, and everybody wants that, <laughs> right? But, but we're, we don't want the other side of the, of the ledger, which is also justice and truth, that there's consequences for actions where we're refusing the mercy that God is, is offering us, right? Yeah. To me, it's like it's 
the bigger question. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. It says hell is necessary, but why is there anyone in heaven? That's probably the bigger question is why is God gracious to us at all? What have we done to deserve that, right? So, yeah, sometimes when we flip, flip the conversation on its head, uh, it kind of awakes us to a different thought process. So, so I love what happens next in this story because the king doesn't give up on all people. He just widens the net. He says to invite anyone. And the servants go out, and they start collecting people off the streets, right? The scripture says good and bad because, I mean, for most townspeople, who doesn't want to go to a royal wedding? Like, most of the folks are like, hey, I'm, I'm going, right? Sign me up. That sounds great. See, the king wasn't looking for the most noble or the most well-behaved or the most morally upright people. He was looking for people who would say yes to come, people who appreciated and understood the generosity of the invitation. And Jesus was kind of foreshadowing to the ministry that would happen after his death and resurrection. You see, for the first time, uh, when Jesus goes up into heaven, he sends his disciples out into all the world. And so for the first time, the message is going to be taken to non-Jewish audience. The same grace and love that's been trying to be extended to these Hebrews for so long is going to be sent out to everyone. Jesus' message, as you read throughout the Gospels, was primarily he was speaking to the Jewish audience, but they were not humble enough to recognize him as Messiah. See, they wanted a Savior on their own terms. And, and Jesus was ready to take this message to a completely different group of people who would receive him. And we see this played out really well. I love the wording of, of the Gospel of John in the very beginning in John 1. He says this, He, Jesus came to that which was his own, the Jews, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Guys, that's you and me. <laughs> that's right. Isn't it comforting to know that the bad were invited to the banquet? That's super comforting for me because, guys, here's the, here's the reality. Spoiler alert. We're all the bad people in the story, Okay. The Bible tells us that we were born enemies of God. And we validated that identity by our self-centered pursuits of living a life, getting what we wanted when we wanted it. And we have no standing to come before God and demand any kind of graciousness on his part at all. I love how Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians. Could you turn your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? It's page 1039. First Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26, Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and to despise things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord.
we're all undeserving of what God has done for us, right? It's because of him. So we can't take any credit. We can't boast. Our boasting is in Christ and his goodness. So yes, God is just and his righteous judgment is swift and complete. But we have to remember, right? We have to always see scripture in the context of the whole story. Okay, so even within this one story, we see a great example of the balance and the swing of God's grace and truth. But remember this, James reminds us of this in his, his book, he wrote this, mercy always triumphs over judgment. Mercy always triumphs over judgment, right? First and foremost is that we have a king, and in his kingdom, he is first and foremost compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, and abounding in love. And Paul says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, right? That's what draws us. So let's look at the last scene of the parable, back in Matthew 22 here, starting in verse 11. It says, But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here? Without wedding clothes, friend, the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So again, just keep in mind, like Jesus is telling these stories and he wants it to shock people, okay? So he uses very, you know, provocative language here and illustrations to get their attention. And there's a lot of cultural context going on in that little piece that we need to kind of explain here and unwrap. So in many cultures at that time, um, guests were actually given wedding clothes to wear, okay, Um, to make sure that everybody, you know, nobody had an excuse, everybody had appropriate attire to wear. So one, you know, slant of this story could be that the guy refused to wear the clothes provided for him. So just kind of this rebellious, you know, refusal to wear the appropriate attire provided. Isaiah 61.10 paints this picture of how God clothes us, right? He says, for he has clothed me, with, clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. And so it's just this image, again, of like God, God clothes us, right? He prepares us to come to the feast. He does it, you know, and we can refuse it, but... Um, that's not going to sit well with him. So if for some reason clothes weren't provided, so let's just say this was some strange anomaly, then he was simply being irreverent about the importance of the event that he was at. He, he wasn't taking it seriously that he was in the presence of royalty, which demands pre-attire. Like you wouldn't have to tell somebody that was going to a royal wedding to dress nice, right? We would all get that. And so we see in this case, he certainly stood out compared to the other guests, right? The king goes right up to this guy, I'm sure, in a crowded banquet hall, and it's obvious this one guy is not dressed like everybody else. He, he can't hide it. His disregard for the cultural norm was obvious. And so the king confronts him. It's like, hey, where's your wedding clothes? And the guy is speechless, right? He is busted. And he knows, like, there's no good excuse that he can give right here. I mean, it, this was a rebellious choice on his part. And I thought to myself, like, why would he possibly do that? <laughs> in, in a big crowded hall, I thought, well, maybe he thought he'd never come face to face with the king. 
Maybe he thought he'd be able to be on the inside and just kind of go unnoticed. It'd be too many people, too, too distracted. And then I thought to myself also, most humans live under that same illusion. Most humans live under this illusion that they're never going to stand before the king of kings one day and give an account for their actions. And so we kind of live life just kind of indifferent and whatever, making up our own rules because we never feel like there's going to come a time where we have to stand and give an account for the choices that we've made. And once again, because of that indifference, God's justice is swift. This, guy, this guest is thrown outside, right? Taken out of this environment where there's all this celebration and joy and light and cast into a world of darkness and suffering. And this indifferent guest reminded me of folks that, that come to church over the years and kind of play church, if you know what I mean, or kind of play at this thing called Christianity. Um, folks who want to come and try to get the benefits of what church provides, you know, kind of, hey, feeling good about myself, I went to church today. You know, it's kind of a nice environment. People are loving and kind and inclusive, and, and you know, they know your name, uh, if, you, if you let them, obviously. Um, but it's, it's a great environment to come to, and, and you feel good about yourself, right? There's definitely some benefits of living life in a Christ-centered community. But like the guests who refuse to wear God's robe of righteousness, these folks want to do Christianity on their own terms. They want to wear what they want to wear behave the way they want to, answering to no one, refusing to engage in the community where both grace and truth are spoken to one another. And my guess is that there's folks here this morning that would fit the bill. You're just kind of playing church on your terms. And I probably did that at some point in my life as well. And in this parable, three types of people are rejected. Okay, the first type of person, I would say, is the person that was indifferent. Okay, and really, that's probably most of humanity would fall into that indifferent category, right? They're indifferent. It says they just go back to work, right? They're, they're driven by, by career, uh, titles, power, money, material gain. We're driven by relationships or distraction or hobbies or whatever it might be. We're just kind of indifferent to God. Yeah, we do, I mean, he's all right. You know, we're not really for or against him. It just doesn't matter on a daily basis in my life. So that's one group. <laughs> the second group is those who are hostile. And we probably know fewer of those people, right? These are the guys that murdered the messengers. I mean, there's, maybe you've come across some people in your life that are just angry at God and, you know, actually trying to persuade people not to follow them. Those, that's a, a smaller crowd, but you might come across them. And then third is the group I just talked about a minute ago is the kind of those who want Jesus on their own terms, Right? I'll come to the party, I'll, I'll partake of the feast and, and all the good things, but I kind of want to do it the way I want to. I want to dress the way I want to, and I don't want to follow your rules, buddy. <laughs> and as we encounter folks in each of those categories, right? so we are called to go and be messengers of, of this gospel message. And so we're going to encounter people in all of those categories. That I think first and foremost, it's important that we remember to be gracious towards them. Because we see the heart of God going a long way, trying to be patient with these guests who were invited. And so we can't come with this immediate judgmental attitude or if somebody kind of doesn't 
hop on board with the Jesus train first time around. We're like, woohoo, see you later, right? We're moving on. It's like, no, <laughs> gracious, gracious, long-suffering, continuing to pursue, you know, this heart that says, I'm leaving the 99, I'm going to get the one, and I'm searching the whole house, looking, that that's the heart of God, okay? So be gracious, folks. While also reminding them of the truth, that God doesn't take it lightly that we reject his son and this invitation. He's not cool with us just kind of pushing God's grace to the side or trying to define the terms under which we follow him. So there's this balance that we have to have with folks. And as members of the body of Christ and and Wellspring Church in particular, those of you that call this place home, we are also to be very concerned with those who want to be a part of our church community but want to do it on their own terms. Those who refuse the clothes of righteousness God provides and want to play around at being Christians. Because if we love them, if we really love them, then we need to lovingly rebuke them and remind them of the privilege it is to be invited to experience what we experience here every week as in the company of the redeemed. And this final verse of this story is such an important one. Verse 14 says, For many are invited, but few are chosen. Jesus, in another story, said that the path to life is a narrow path and that only a few find it. And it's not because people are excluded. In fact, the exact opposite is true. God's invitation for forgiveness and abundant life is cast for everyone. Every human that he's ever created has the same invitation but rather and this is important only a few find it because god demands that we come on his terms and some of those terms you can see very clearly in scripture i think in general i just thought of four but some of his terms are this we have to come humbly there's there's no room for pride that's why it says if anybody's going to boast boast in god's grace for you not that you figured out Christianity. You got to come with a repentant heart. You got to admit your sin and your need for Him, and that you can't solve the riddle of your sin in your own cunning wisdom or your own attempts to be good. You have to surrender. Right? We sing about this this morning too. I surrender, I surrender, right? We have to surrender our control of life. And, and us kind of trying to bulldoze our plan and say, God, I'm yours. Your will be done. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And we have to come with an appreciation for the gift offered. It was a costly gift that can't be taken lightly. We have to come and we have to say, God, man, it cost you a lot to redeem me. And there has to be this godly sorrow in us that says, man, <laughs> I'm a part of the reason why you're on the cross. And as we'll see in the parables we'll continue to look at over the next several weeks, Jesus is trying to communicate to this audience in his last couple days this sense of urgency, right? Time is drawing short in his life. And he wants people to understand the gift that's going to be offered them on the cross just a couple days later. He wants them to get that. And likewise, We live in a time right now where we are waiting for Christ's return. 
and we've got this invitation that's gone out to all the world. Anybody can receive it. You're all invited to the banquet, right, in Revelation that talks about us sitting down at the banquet in this new kingdom that God has for us, and everybody's invited. But, guys, there's a time limit, right? When you get that wedding invitation, it's like you have to reply by a certain time or else in some weddings you can't come. And nobody knows when that date is for us. So there's a sense of urgency. Are we ready to see him face to face and answer how we've responded to his invitation? To answer for how we've treated his son? And there might be some people in here that are wrestling with those questions. Um, but maybe a different question for some of us that, that maybe have kind of already answered that or at least we feel like we have in our hearts. I would ask this question is, is how um, relentless are we in pursuing those that are far from him? You know, I, I looked at the, that question a, a little while ago. I asked you, is, is why does he continue to pursue? And when I said he knows the reality of hell, do we have this sense of this reality of hell that, that compels us, man, to go and share and, and speak the good news to people? If we don't, then we have to ask ourselves a little bit, are we a little bit indifferent to the message? And I don't say that in a bad way, but it's just kind of true. Like, if we're not very compelled to go and share that with others, do we really understand what it is that's been offered to us? Because somebody probably shared it with us, and we're eternally grateful for that knowledge, right? Somebody took the time to tell us about Jesus, and it changed us and transformed us. Why aren't we compelled to do that more? And there's a lot of reasons why. <laughs> Distraction, fear. We see a lot of the same qualities from the guest in the story here, right? We just kind of, meh, I could go in and tell my neighbor that, but I'm going to go to work. You know, we're not that far from these characters here in the story, y'all. Okay, so we need to pray and say, God, man, prompt me. Help me understand what's at stake here. <laughs> the gift that's being offered. The fact that I can bring people this amazing royal banquet and they could benefit and get to experience that. Man, who doesn't want that? <sighs> but we need to live a compelling life that draws people in, right? So what are you guys going to take away from this message? I, I'm, I'm not going to like leave you with this is what you know, needs to happen or what you need to do. And every once in a while, I just want to ask, like, how did God speak to you today? So a lot of times when I sit down with people and we do premarital counseling or whatever, I always ask them, what's the one thing? You know, if you forget everything that we talked about today, what's the one thing that you're going to hang on to? Anybody have just a few spot answers here before we head out? What's the one thing that you're going to take away? Somebody who hasn't spoken today, somebody who I haven't heard from in a while. Who's it going to be? Yes, yeah, Devin. Yeah, yeah. Just the indifference piece of, of the response or lack of response to the invitation. Yeah. Yes, Stephen. Yeah. The urgency of sharing the gospel with people. Good. Hey, if you're, if you're at my dinner table on Sunday after church, you're going to get asked, what do you think about the message today, whether I'm the speaker or not the speaker, right? Yeah. Tony? Yeah. 
Yeah. He's looking for people to say yes to follow him and also carry out. Yeah, Brad. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I love the, the first part of what you said, just that guess that got thrown out, really kind of asking ourselves, like, am I, am I that fraud sometimes? Am I the person that kind of wants the benefits of, you know, being at the party and the celebration, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm being disobedient to God in, in whatever aspects of my life? And um, that's good. Guys, Jesus spoke in parables. Okay, I mean, he could have just come out and just said it. Right? But he basically says, listen, I'm going to speak in parables because I want people to wrestle with the story. I don't want it to be just this easy to, to swallow thing. I want it to create some tension. So I'm going to invite these characters and I'm going, to, I'm going to create this tension. Like I said, in the crowd today where they're just like, oh my gosh, what are these people doing? Like, he wants us to really wrestle with this stuff. And where are we at in the story? And, you know, just kind of we talked about at the very beginning of this whole series, like the purpose of parables. We looked at a quote by N.T. Wright that was just really good. Is it's, it's a story, and it's inviting us to participate in the story and, and be a character and play our role and our part. And who do we want to be in that story? So let's pray.